when I was asked some time ago now to uh, if I would care to offer some teachings again at this at this venue or at the Sati Center, I considered what to uh, what to offer, what to speak about. Um, some of you are familiar to me as long-term students, and most of you are new, and I, and I don't know what your uh, Dharma experience or commitment is. But <clears throat> a few years ago now, several years ago now, I offered a, a series of day-long seminars over the course of two years here on the Abhidhamma or the Buddhist psychology, which was... Uh, what people's interest was at the time. And more recently, since um, oh, since about 2000, I have been working on a translation editing of, a, of the Manual of Insight, or a Manual of Insight Meditation, written by Mahasi Sayadaw from Burma. Now, I came upon this uh, project when I returned to Burma in 2000. I took my wife, Kamala, to Burma for the first time. And I'd lived in Burma back in the 80s for five years, living in a monastery in in the Mahasi Meditation Center in Rangoon, and had practiced uh, insight meditation then. And under the guidance of Upandita, who was the successor to Mahasi Sayadaw. Mahasi Sayadaw was a well-known, well, uh, maybe the most, one of the most well-known uh, monks of Burma in the 20th century. Uh, he was both a scholar, extraordinary scholar, and uh, an extraordinary practitioner who was able to teach both what he knew from theory and practice to others skillfully. So he's had a very uh, wide impact on the practice of insight meditation or mindfulness meditation to develop insight both in Burma and in the West. And I say that because he was invited after he you know, did his studies and did some practice and, and became somewhat known in Burma, he was invited to open or to teach at a meditation center for lay people in Rangoon. And this was quite a new, well, it was, it was totally new uh, situation because prior to uh, the late 40s or early 50s, if you'd wanted to hear the teachings of the Buddha and to receive ongoing and practical instruction and guidance in meditation you would you would have had to ordain as a monk or nun and stayed in a monastery for decades in order to get the range of teachings that Mahasi Sayadaw had kind of compiled and put together in a, in a two month course so this made it possible for uh, lay people Householders, uh, government workers, and shopkeepers to to take a month or two a year, or 
for a period of time in their life and to go to this meditation center and practice meditation under very skillful guidance with a very precise understanding of what they were doing and to uh, to realize uh, notable experience of the Dharma. Not, not just kind of have a general survey of the Dharma that you can get from reading books, but to have a notable personal experience uh, uh, of the Dharma and the truth of what the Buddha taught. Well, this was uh, fantastic because it just made the practice of mindfulness and the development of insight and the realization of the Buddha's teachings within reach of people like ourselves. And all of us, are, none of us here are monks or nuns, and we're all householders and shopkeepers, and we have careers and relationships and families and obligations, and we're deeply enmeshed, some might say entangled in the world, and uh, we've got a life. And we're interested in the teachings of the Buddha and how they are uh, useful, applicable, available, um, how they might um, make our enmeshed and entangled life a little easier, a little more understandable, a little more open, a little more free. So after establishing this meditation center, of course, it took only a few years before it became very popular in Burma. And one of the uh, senior teachers in the tradition of Vipassana in the West, uh, Anagarika Manindra, went from India to Burma in order to practice. Uh, the teachings of the Buddha were no longer available in India, uh, where the Buddha had lived and taught. And uh, he was from a, a Bengali clan or, or family that were Buddhist rather than Hindu. And wanting the teachings, practical teachings, he went to Burma and he was invited to stay at the Mahasi Meditation Center where Mahasi Sayadaw. Uh, Sayadaw means spiritual teacher and Mahasi was his name. So he was the Mahasi Sayadaw, the Mahasi spiritual teacher. And he was invited to stay there where he practiced and then studied uh, the text, the Buddhist teachings for eight years. He then returned to India and set up shop in Bodhgaya, the location where the Buddha uh, realized the, the Four Noble Truths, became enlightened, if you will. And as or when or while Manindra was teaching in Bodhgaya, Joseph Goldstein and others, but primarily Joseph, uh, ended up in Bodhgaya practicing with him. And Joseph stayed there for seven years, practicing with Anagarika Manindra in this tradition, and then returned to the States and started the whole, well, it was one significant deep tap root of the, the whole uh, insight, mindfulness, uh, meditation tradition in the West. So we trace the lineage back from us to our let's say, first generation of Western teachers, Joseph, Jack, Sharon, uh, to Anagarika Manindra, who practiced with Mahasi Sayadaw. So 
this is the topic, or this is the person, the writings, that I thought to present today. Teachings from the Masi Saito. If you'd like to come in and sit a little closer so you don't feel quite so out in the other room, please come in. So, As I began this little introduction, or rather lengthening introduction, uh, I said I returned to Burma in 2000. I took my wife for the first time. And in meeting old friends there that I hadn't seen in 10 years, I met one former monk, now a layman, who um, would marry, gotten married and had a couple of children and was living uh, outside of Rangoon, and, and I asked him what he was doing. And he said that he was um, trying to translate uh, Mahasi Sayadaw's manual of insight meditation. And I said, uh, you mean Mahasi Sayadaw's manual of insight meditation hasn't been translated into English? Because I knew Mahasi Sayadaw was very famous. His teachings were the foundation of teachings in the West. And I thought that everything relevant to his teaching and practice would have already been translated into English. Several books of his have been. And he said, no, this book never had been translated. And I was, well, aghast, <laughs> considering that um, it had been the tradition that I'd practiced in for more than 30 years. And it's a, it's a pretty important and significant part of my uh, understanding of the Dharma and, and practice. So I, I said, well, how's it going? And he said, well, <laughs> not too good. Electricity, you can't keep the computers running in Burma for more than a couple hours a day. That's one challenge. And then he, he doesn't really have, didn't have any money. And, you know, it just, it, things, conditions are really bad, really difficult. So my wife and I undertook to uh, support him for a couple of years to do the translating of these two volumes which he handed off to us, well, several years ago now, and we've been editing. We and some of our senior uh, students have been uh, editing and putting into, let's say, more readable English and having the uh, Pali uh, quotes and references uh, translated and also put into English. Pali is the language of the, that the teachings of the Buddha are recorded in. And, well, it has just mushroomed into this massive under, <laughs> undertaking. But it's, it's, it's slowly, it's, it's, it's coming to fruition. And we've talked to some publishers. And, and we think that, well, maybe we'll get it to a publisher by the end of next year. But in the meantime, people, some people know about it and have been asking about it, like, isn't it done yet? And uh, I keep saying no, but it, if you really want to hear something about it, then... I'll, I'll speak for a day. So that's what today's uh, topic is in response to some people inquiring, well, what's going on with this uh, manual of insight meditation and when can we get a look at it? And uh, so that was my uh, invite uh, today. That's what I chose to offer. And now that you're here, it's what you get to listen to. So, 
uh, I have here uh, a handout. Uh, I guess I had written that the, uh, the topic would be refined knowledge, subtle wisdom. And the, um, when I say refined knowledge, subtle wisdom, I'm referring to really the most refined teachings and understandings uh, that the Buddha taught and how we can access those understandings directly, personally, through practice. Oh, I have a lot more here, too. So, as you can imagine, the two volumes, you know, 800 pages of uh, material is a lot to kind of excerpt or extract or kind of mention in a day long. So what I did was I took, um, well, one topic from each chapter, uh, a preface from the preface in each chapter. I took a topic and and asked a question and uh, thought that that could be the format for our dialogue today. So uh, you can see I've identified them as chapter, the preface in chapters one through seven. And uh, now that you're all looking at it, maybe I'll give you a minute to <laughs> see what it is you want to do. <clears throat> and I tried to, I tried to um, format the questions in ways that I think would be relevant to, to us, things that we've, we've all faced in our own practice and how some of the understanding in the uh, Manual of Insight can be helpful in helping us to refine our understanding of what practice is, what practice isn't, how to practice, and therefore to, uh, to, to aim our practice in a way that we realize uh, the subtlety of these understandings for ourselves. And when we realize them, they become our own wisdom. You know, when Mahasi Sayadaw realized them, they became his wisdom. But his wisdom to us is just knowledge. And knowledge is not enough. We can acquire all the knowledge, read all the books, listen to all the talks we want, and we won't be one bit freer because we haven't realized it for ourselves. It's only through practice, and this is the important distinction between knowledge and wisdom, is practice, the link between all the knowledge that we've acquired and making it real for us and and, uh, have it impact our life in a meaningful way so that we act more wisely, more skillfully, more freely or with more understanding, with a more liberated mind, the link between that knowledge and that change in life or lifestyle is practice. So today, a lot of what we're going to do is just acquire more knowledge but hopefully it'll be a more, maybe a refined knowledge. It'll help, uh, it'll help answer some of the some, some questions you might have or might not even know that you have in a way that hopefully will support you to practice uh, more uh, and to practice more skillfully and hopefully to realize more subtly, to apply more uh, wisely. Just like that. So, um, 
I could, I could just sit here and talk for the next six or eight hours and you'd probably all fall asleep after a couple hours and then I could say anything and you wouldn't know the difference. So uh, just so that I don't get bored and tired, I would like in some ways to, to make this a little more interactive. So I've been talking for a little while now. Now it's your turn. What I would like to ask you, uh, hello, just so that I have kind of a sense of where you're coming from and can direct my comments and instruction and teachings towards what will be really useful for you, I'd like to get a sense of who you are as far as where are you in your Dharma commitment, your Dharma practice, what gets you interested or how you're interested in the Dharma, and, and most specifically, what brought you here today? What interested you about today's topic or uh, what, what was it that got you here today as far as Dharma interest, Dharma aspiration? So that, you know, as I said, I'd like to make this as useful uh, as possible for you. Uh, the Dharma, as you know, is this vast uh, topic. It's, it's everything about you in life. And uh, we could spend a lot of time in areas of the Dharma that are not particularly interesting or useful to you. Just anecdotally, uh, Anagarika Manindra that I, that I mentioned, who had studied with Mahasi Saito in Burma and was a teacher to a lot of us uh, in the early years of practice, uh, came and stayed with my wife and I on his last trip to the States many years ago now. And he was a walking, talking uh, encyclopedia of the Dharma. He just had studied and read and practiced and lived his whole life immersed in the Dharma. And he was just, that's, that was just his whole life. And I had the, well, fortunate or unfortunate experience of when he first arrived, I had some questions in my mind about the Dharma that I wanted to kind of pick his brain about. So early on in his visit, he stayed with us for several days, maybe a week. Uh, I asked him this question. I can't remember what it was about the Dharma. So he launches into an answer which didn't end before he left. <laughs> it's like every opportunity, you know, we'd go for a walk and he'd pick it up again and keep talking. Or we'd be, you know, we'd have a meal at the end of which he'd keep talking. And... It's like if you pull, you know, if you if you find any entree into the Dharma, into the understanding of the teachings of the Buddha, any entree, and you pull that thread, the whole Dharma will unravel. And he was a perfect example of that. He could he could take any topic and talk forever <laughs> and cover everything. So, you know, it is possible, but I would like to hear from you what thread we should try to pull today or what kind of rent in the fabric we should try to stitch together maybe would be a better way to talk about it. So, yeah, yeah, please. Oh yeah, I heard you have this wonderful habit here or uh, training here, conditioning here that you actually get the questions recorded right also, on. Also sometimes people have... Um Hard to hear. Uh, hard to hear. And have yeah. listening devices. Um, so um, I'm interest, I'm in this interesting cusp of um, 
my practice, I came back from six-week retreat that Upandita held in San Jose, May and June. And I, um, this was my third retreat with him and fourth long retreat at TMC, so altogether six months of intensive practice. And uh, it was very hard to come back and pick up the threads of, uh, of Sansara. And uh, I'm married with a child. And very happily so. But I keep at this, you know, do I, how, how much do I want to go deep in the Dharma? And there's a real urge to sort of leave everything. And I can say it because my husband knows it. <laughs> He's my friend and I discuss it with him intimately. So um, sort of leave and become a nun. And we don't know. We are just there thinking I most probably won't do it. It's my 22nd anniversary today and I'm here. <laughs> so. You can understand how important it is. My husband happily waved me away this morning. Let's see you in the evening. Um, and so you were, I heard, a monk for a while, and now you are married, and I don't know. And, you know. So if you can talk a little bit about, bit about how deeply one can go as a householder and what are the benefits of that as, as opposed to a monk's life. I have met many wonderful teachers who are householders, including Gil is one of the prime examples. Just awesome example. But there is something about monks. There is something about monks that just takes, you know, takes the platform you're standing on away. And it just feels like an encounter like that just can change your life. Yes. Um, so. Thank you very much. Um, I now realize that I want to make some notes about what people say, so I'm going to get a, a, a piece of paper and, and pen I've got over here. Um, gee, you brought up a lot, and you know we could take all day and just follow that thread of the conversation, and it'd be very rich. And I hope that we that I can get to say more. Thanks, Tony. Hope that. We can get to say more. If at the end of the day I haven't touched on it enough, ask again and I'll say something more. Um, But let me just mention that I met Gil in Burma when we were both monks at the Mahasi Meditation Center. So there's a pretty pretty intricate connection uh, here. And your your feeling about... uh, Monks, uh, let me just say, it's not only monks, it's nuns also. Uh, those renunciates, renunciates. It's people who have really uh, made a kind of a decision in their life and have lived a quality, uh, a kind of life that is in some ways so very different than ours. It uh, evokes something in us, you know, and I guess one way of understanding it is um, we may all have the... Uh, archetype, if you will, of renunciate within our heart, within our mind, that doesn't get a lot of airtime in our culture, doesn't get a lot of doesn't get a lot of room to kind of fill out. Uh, just, we just don't have a lot of role models for uh, renunciate, renunciation or renunciate being be, being a renunciate for a period of time. Going on retreat is one way, of course. We have the Dalai Lama, we have uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, and some of us may have a connection with the Catholic tradition, and that's it. That's, that's not very much, frankly. I mean, it's nice and it's good, but when you, when you, when you feel that 
urge within your own heart and mind to, to undertake renunciation, or you feel the value of renunciation, uh, don't dismiss it lightly. It is a deeply embedded need uh, in the mind. And uh, just nurture that. Nurture it. Nurture the aspiration. And even though you may not be able to act on it now, fully, as you see or want or imagine, nurture it so that when conditions come around to support, you're making a decision to fulfill your aspiration, then you'll have done the groundwork the inner groundwork of recognizing the value of uh, this aspiration to yourself. Uh, And then when, you know, you're either done with your your family life or your career or whatever it is, or whatever set of conditions come to support uh, a more active, intense, ongoing renunciation, then you can do that. I'll speak more about that. Yeah. I was sitting at Forest Refuge for about a month and I happened to just gravitate toward the Mahasi Sayadaw material. And um, I even had, a, I started to sit a retreat another uh, year later and I had a dream in which Sally Cloth came to me and said she was going to give me the Mahasi Sayadaw tapes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, I was just going to, I mean, so I'm here because I, I'm interested in the material very much and felt the gravitation towards that for no un, unapparent reason because there were different choices in the library at the Forest Refuge. Um, but regarding the last, I know, um, I just want to say I became a monk in Korea and I think that it's not about that kind, specifically that kind of renunciation. It's about the aspiration to attain the, the mind and I don't think you have to be a monk or a, you, you can choose to do that completely in your daily life. There's a way you can do a lot more practice as a monk, but it's really about you can choose that right now in your daily life and to make every action be about that practice. So anyway, but thank you for coming here to teach us. Yeah. So I've done a lot of practice and study in both the Vipassana and the Zen traditions, and I'm aware that a lot of teachers teach a mishmash of things that they've picked up in various places. And that may be for them a skillful combination of what they know. In many circumstances, it's also because they don't know the tradition from which what they're teaching springs. And so they put together pieces that they don't know are actually incompatible when you trace back their roots. Mm-hmm. So I want to know what did Mahasi Sayadaw yeah. actually teach? Not yeah. all of the embroidering on it since. Yes. Uh, that, that's a really good point. Uh, I, I want to I second that or I want to affirm that, that um, we are in the West both blessed and cursed with this, uh, the profusion of uh, Dharma and spiritual and psychological and shamanistic and holistic and uh, traditions of teachings that have made their way to the West and have access through Internet and, and books and whatnot 
to uh, a lot of interest or that we have interest in. And uh, I agree with you that there is such a uh, mix and match and mishmash that it's often difficult now actually to find a pure tradition. Uh, and there might, some might question, well, what's the value of that anyway? Uh, but I think that there is uh, value in, in tracing back the roots, uh, you know, and seeing where, they, where, where these things come from and how is it they've been kind of adapted to uh, either Western audience or English language or uh, what people are interested in or what sells. Because if we're only going to get what sells, we're not going to get the right thing. Frankly. Okay. What sells? <laughs> yeah. Hi. Uh, my name is Larie, and I'm, I'm new, if that's not obvious. <laughs> um, and I guess where I came from, um, I, was, I, I believe I was nine um, when I decided that I was agnostic. I had heard the word, and it made sense to me at the time. I was very interested in um, traditional religions when I was very young. Um, I came across that word, and I, I knew that was correct for me. Um, and then not too long after, um, I started to have questions that led me in a direction um, where I started to listen to uh, people who spoke um, in an, from an Eastern philosophy or understanding, and I knew those things too. And um, it was the first knowing that I understood that I had. Um, and it fit a lot better, so it resonated. And um, I guess why I'm here is that I've chosen a, a, a career that I thought I could incorporate um, learning about these things um, comfortably. And um, I chose a career in dance and art and dance choreography. And, mm -hmm. and I've actually found it difficult to... Um, I found, I found the link difficult, which is um, something that I didn't expect um, because I, I sort of imagined that um, being an artist or, or being creative was going to take my insides and bring them to the forefront. Um, it was going to give me a forum to communicate um, what I understood and also it was going to bring up the questions, which would lead me to more questions. Um, but I've noticed that I've, I've sort of lost um, the time that's needed. I, I work all the time to make it possible. And I've just, I've just um, found an opportunity to clear my daytime. So I work every night. And so with that opportunity, I've decided to um, more, more directly learn um, or try to learn about, about, I guess, Dharma or mm -hmm. the writings or mm -hmm. people who read them or people who understand them. Mm -hmm. So I'm here to begin, I guess. Yeah, we all are, really. Uh, we're, we're, we're beginning again. <laughs> so it's a good point. I think uh, the fact that, you know, we start out with, like you, hoping for something and we, we move in one direction and find out that that didn't really get us what we want and we, we make an adjustment and we keep, well, we keep making adjustments to, to refine our understanding of what it is we want, how to get it and, and, and how about, how, how to go about doing that. 
just incidentally, you know the you know the space shuttle that they set up send up from uh, Florida. They have this little little space shuttle thing, and they, they they shoot it off into space, and you know it 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 goes for two or three days, and it arrives at the space station, and on board the space shuttle is is all these uh, a very elaborate no doubt computer computerized tracking system of how to get there and the people on the ground are kind of monitoring it and seeing how it's doing you know the space shuttle is off course 98% of the time 98% of the time the space shuttle is heading in the wrong direction but it gets to where it's going why because it makes or the ground trackers make innumerable mid-course corrections. Our practice is just like that. Our practice to understand the truth, what it is we need for ourselves, and how to, how to practice in, is off course, well, about 98% of the time. But when we notice that we're off course, if we make a mid-course correction, and we say, you know what, this isn't quite the right direction, if we keep making those corrections, if we're open enough to realize, you know what, this isn't quite doing it for me, uh, and make a correction, we will eventually reach the goal. Yeah. Other? Yeah. I'm uh, new to Buddhist practice. Yes. Brought here by another member. Uh, she's come very close to me. Uh, the problem, there are several problems connected. One is that I'm much older and uh, have concerned, will I ever be able to learn enough to do this? Um, secondly, the discussions um, are very intellectual and deep and really difficult to grasp sometimes in the language used. Thirdly, um, the practice has enormous hindrances for me um, because my life is unstable and it's and I have in it um, very worrisome life changes um, uh, circling around me in my circumstances, which cause great anxiety and uh, even fear and uncertainty. So. My emotional state is so um, self-absorbed that it's really difficult to sit and practice without focusing on those worries and concerns. And that's what comes up during practice is not less suffering, but more in a way. Uh, no doubt self-created to a large degree, but often, but also dictated by external circumstances. And that is an enormous hindrance. Yeah. And I would like you to talk about those kinds of things as well. Yeah. And also you mentioned renunciation. How is renunciation reflected in your life uh, or the life of most laymen? Um, we can't practice that and give it all up at once. What what ought we to be looking for in that way? Uh, 
and why will it be good for us? Yeah. Well, you've really hit the nail on the head. You know, there's a lot of cause for anxiety, fear, and insecurity, and it's difficult, and we're emotionally self-absorbed, and it's not less suffering, there's more suffering, and, and how can I practice renunciation anyway? That's what it's all about. That's, that's exactly, you, 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 you've, you've covered the topic really good. <laughs> and that's what we'll be talking about. Uh, but let me just, let me just say that everything that you mentioned is that, that is the way it is. You know, and that's the way it's been for every one of us in this room. That life is too, is too busy, it's too demanding, it's too emotionally involving, it's too fearful, too anxiety producing, too, 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 and how can I let go of all of my support system to manage it all anyway. And yet, we do. Somehow, we make little steps, you know, to, to kind of understand certain things, to practice in the face of overwhelming emotional involvement and anxiety and fear and, and preoccupation and uh, our in, in a complete enmeshment and entanglement in all of the things that we've we've tried to patch together to to save us from ourselves, and uh, how can we let go of all that, or any of it, and yet we do, slowly, slowly. I mean, I, I see many of you in the room, uh, some of you in the room that I know have been practicing for 20, 30 years or more. So there's something happening. You know, just just to let you know, there's people in the room that have been practicing more than 30 years, and they're still here. You know, they're still they're still doing it, and they've they faced what you faced. And they're still facing the same thing, but maybe maybe facing it or managing it a little more skillfully. And that's really the direction we want to look for. It's not to get rid of the causes of anxiety and fear and emotional entanglement. It's to find another way of relating to it all. Yeah. I think, uh, to be very honest, I was not interested in Mahasi Sai at all. Um, uh, can you speak up a little bit? Uh, to be honest... Um, I've been over the years more attracted to the Thai teachers, Thai teachers. as the Thai, as opposed to the Burmese tradition. And um, uh, I might have been influenced with my husband, who's uh, we have uh, been um, together for many, many years. And his tradition has been more in Advaita, and um, so I have been influenced by that. And uh, the one that really caught my eye uh, was in that long your flyer um, was um, skillful means for liberation skillful means for liberation yeah mm-hmm. okay this is the next to the last person <laughs> so yeah uh, yesterday I had the uh somewhat mixed blessing of being told that I was someone else's difficult person, their enemy, so to speak. Um, I have tremendous respect um, and I have great fondness for the person who shared this information with me. And she did it from a place of both um, truth I mean, and, and loving kindness um, and so I am working actively with, um, with this. Uh, it's blessed to have today. Uh, I looked forward to today because I thought, oh, I will be able to bring the transformation um, of that moment 
through some of the work we're doing here today. I'm working, um, I mean, I'm facing the pain of it. I'm facing uh, the curiosity, I mean, a tremendous curiosity of, oh, wow, is that how I'm seen? Um, and I also am facing a, a need for a great deep well of patience around the transformation. And, and that's where I am asking for what wisdom and practice you can share. You were on my calendar ahead of this moment. <laughs> but thank you for thank timing you. Um, it so well. I, 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 when you say it's a blessing and a, about challenge, you know, we've all been someone's difficult person, probably more than once. But our, have, our own often. It, well, and, and that's true, our own too. And uh, that, that, that is a, a big source of suffering in our life. And that's one level or one area that we begin with, uh, you know, that, we, that practice covers. Uh, let me just say that we'll spend some time with that, but there's, there's, there's uh, much, much... Uh, there's an understand. There's understandings behind that that I hope we get to today. That that can hopefully relieve you instantly. <laughs> you know, in America, everything's got to be instant or or pretty near it for it to have any credibility. So, instant. I'm not saying instant enlightenment, but instant relief. Okay. <clears throat> My name's Ron. Um, I've been practicing for many years and uh, in 1981 went to the Mahasi Center for the first time to practice. And you have been teaching for many years and practicing in the Mahasi tradition. And I know that coming upon this manual that Mahasi wrote uh, opened up uh, new insights and perspectives on the practice uh, that you've been teaching and that I've been practicing. And so I'd really like to know what you've discovered for yourself uh, through these two volumes and through the translation that uh, would be most useful, uh, perhaps things that haven't been uh, illuminated or, or uh, taught or new perspectives or attitudes that we could bring to practice that would be helpful and accelerate our progress. Okay, so it's interesting. If you pay attention to your life, you will grow. You can't help it. You know, you just will notice things that you hadn't noticed before, and you'll have to make uh, accommodation uh, for what you now know that you didn't know before. And that's growing, and it's not always easy. But we can grow in the wrong direction. We can grow in unskillful ways as well as skillful ways. So it does make a difference what you put in your mind. You know, and we all have 24 hours a day, uh, some of which are awake, and a few moments of which we are aware. So what is it that we're putting in our mind? Because that's the direction we're going to grow. What you put into your mind is the direction you're going to grow. So uh, let me just mention, thank you for for having the interest in growing in this direction, the direction that, uh, uh, that I think this material 
uh, should take us uh, today. More understanding and uh, more wisdom, really. How to live, how to live with uh, less suffering and uh, how to cause others less suffering.